RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's about that time again to welcome our friend from Dublin, Ireland, back to Reality Check Radio, Ivor Cummins. Um, I, I don't think I need to go through any more introductions, Ivor. I think you're well established now. So <laughs> I just need to say the name, I think, and our listeners are, oh, it's Ivor. <laughs> Well, Paul, great to be here again, as always. Um, they'll be treated to the usual madness. Yeah, never stops. And it's been pretty mad here. Well, we can talk about that some other time. Anyway, here's a question. Have you ever eaten fake meat? Ah, fake meat. I actually did try it probably 10 or 15 years ago out of curiosity. Maybe that corn stuff. Uh, and it was disgusting. I remember it was one of the bacon. It was it was meant to be bacon. Yeah. And it was anything but. Um, but I did try it, though. Yeah, absolutely gross. <laughs> um, what about flavor? Was there was there anything like the flavor you would have expected? I'm, I'm just curious because I've never eaten fake meat. I, I don't know what that would be like. Yeah, back then, and certainly most of it, even now, I'd guess, it, the texture, the flavor, they're all synthetic. It's clearly not meat. Uh, I do remember that much. Now, the Beyond Burger and all of those more recent ones, I guess they'd seem more like meat because they're using technology, laboratory methods, you know, proteins uh, and and synthesis you know, to make it closer. Uh, but for me, the fundamental thing is the whole thing is absurd because, you know, if you want to eat meat, eat the real nutrient-dense ancestral food uh, of Homo sapiens, which is meat itself. And if you're a vegetarian or a vegan and you don't want to eat meat because you object to meat, well, then you certainly shouldn't be eating something that's pretending to be meat. That's kind no, of no. I've never got that one. I've I've never quite got that. The the need to make fake meat as if that um, desire for meat still exists, but um, you know, you, you know, you, your head's ruling your, your your stomach sort of thing. I could never work that one out. Yeah, I think that's because it's a tops down strategy uh, from vegetarian and vegan interests, and more recently, more sinister interests. I'd suggest. Uh, it's a tops-down strategy to encourage people to move away from real meat, and it forms part of the propaganda uh, around the anti-meat lobby. You know, the very fact that you have to make fake meat because it's better in some way, ideologically, or for the animals, or for the environment. It's all part of the propaganda against meat. Uh, I think that's largely it. And vegetarians, I know, actually, it did come up in discussion uh, but they they never buy the fake meats. So I think, I suspect, I'm not sure, it's maybe wannabes, uh, climate-saving wannabes. Oh, dear. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay, but so I guess it's uh, if you, you know, endorse the real thing, you won't be too worried that some of these companies are now failing. Is that right? Yeah, we've seen some spectacular collapses in stock price uh, for I think Beyond Burger is one of them, actually one of the more recent ones that would be more realistic. And it's not too surprising because there's a lot more pushback now, uh, thankfully, around the world to all this woke stuff and 
and the vegan stuff and even push back against the climate stuff, which is very, very weak science. And that's beginning to get out there now. So I think that's part of it. And collapse in, I think, Beyond Burger, or it might have been the Wonder Burger, or one or the other ones. <laughs> the Wonder Burger. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Uh, wonderful junk. But there was an article yesterday, actually, uh, where in general, the fake meat companies are failing hard. And I did see one in England as well a couple of months ago. And apparently now corn, Q-U-O-R-N, I think it was the original around 30 yep. years ago. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, actually causing problems for its parent company. It's undermining the parent company's finances. And the family behind it are now going to inject cash uh, <laughs> into the business. So that sounds pretty grim now when you're at that kind of level. So it looks like a kind of a broad brush backlash uh, as people are beginning to realize. There, there were reports, many reports over the last few years, actually, highlighting that the fake meat, the climate impact could be argued to be much worse than real uh, meat, yeah. Yeah. which makes sense because all of the monocropping, intensive farming, and then the shipping of all the ingredients around the world, and then you've got the whole industrial laboratory set up that creates it. If you add it all together, you're not saving anything. And maybe some of that message has got out too, that even if you buy into the CO2 warming stuff, you know, the fake meat is not a solution even to that imaginary problem. Yeah, it's being used, though, as a um, a stick against farmers, isn't it? Because it is climate-connected. So you say that the way real meat is, uh, is produced uh, is damaging to climate, so therefore we have to limit that. But, hey, here's some fake meat to fill the gap. So it is a weaponized instrument against farming and ultimately in support of the, the climate madness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as we said, it's it's a it's a form of propaganda. It's one strand of the propaganda, and it is indeed a tool. And we see, of course, uh, Mr. Gates is buying all the farmland, and he's creating more companies around the fake food. He was even around a year or two ago. I haven't heard an update. He was creating a fake breast milk kind <laughs> of company. So of was course, he, was he got testing the, it on himself? Is he? <laughs> or producing saw, it himself. I saw a recent picture. I shared it on Twitter yesterday, and it, it's a pal of mine, PD Mangan, who's this incredibly sculpted, muscle-bound uh, guy. I think well into his sixties, uh, super fit, and it's just a picture of him flexing, and a picture of Gates beside him, and said, "We are the same age." And Gates is there in one of his pullovers, and yeah, he's got his little. Uh, Little man boobs and yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's a, he's he's perfect for for being involved in that in that case. Um, yeah, when you come to people like Gates, people with so much money, they can do so much with it. You, you're almost tempted to want to limit their wealth, so they can't go out and buy big swathes of, of land to do this with. They can't persuade or take over you know, NGOs, non-elected um, operations like the WHO. Too much money. You've got to take it away from some people, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a libertarian and, and, and capitalist, of course, in general. 
Uh, I've become completely allergic to socialist concepts over the last three years since the totalitarian takeover started. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, th- this is a major problem. And it's one of the biggest problems on our planet, I would say. So way back even to the Rockefellers in the 50s who set up essentially the UN, the Club of Rome, uh, and all of these other NGOs and, and bodies to, to put in motion what broke on our shores in March 2020, you know, the whole COVID madness and the climate stuff. You know, the problem is when sociopathic individuals get simply too much money and they get to the point where more money makes no difference to them. And then they switch automatically, naturally to power. They want power and control. And yeah, that's the nub of our problem. And money corrupts everything. And we see with the FDA, pharma money has a revolving door with the fda and all the other regulatory bodies so yeah it's money and power it corrupts entirely yeah it's just trouble uh you know if you're going to believe in free markets do you um accept that it can can go rogue or do you you have some mechanism to stop that i don't know well anyway the fake meat companies are failing hard doesn't sound good for them we've talked about censorship quite a bit in our chats uh, there was the um, the law going down in Ireland. I don't know where that's at at the moment. But um, I've got in my notes here, censorship is now very specific. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I thought this was a point uh, worth letting people know. So I've noticed, I, I kind of track the analytics and all the social media platforms, and I watch for trends. And obviously during covid I got strikes and videos taken down for for talking about the vaccine, for being against the lockdown uh, and all of that hot stuff at the time. But it's very interesting in the last six months, I've noticed on LinkedIn and YouTube and elsewhere, mainly LinkedIn and YouTube, though, specifically the strikes and the posts taken down so far for me have all been related to World Economic Forum slash UN and like short videos explaining the history of that or of Klaus Schwab uh, and climate. So it seems now that the censorship has shifted. It's now not so interested in in vaccine and and that kind of uh, genre, if you will. And it's very much focusing on what the current uh, strategy is. So we see climate and even World Economic Forum. And of course, with COVID, there was a defense. Oh, it's medical misinformation. Uh, There's a safety issue, right? So they had a kind of a narrative to go with the uh, incredible censorship. Whereas now what we see is the censorship was never about a real justification. It's actually always moving to what the globalists now do not want discussed. So we see World Economic Forum slash UN and climate are now the hot buttons that the platforms seem to be, uh, I don't know, uh, told to uh, to pull down or to limit or to censor. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, um, reverse engineering that, it, it's pretty obvious what's going on. So um, it, it you would have to say that there's obviously some connection between, you know, how it manifested recently up till um i don't know you, you probably give us a line in the sand but yeah medical misinformation all of that to now specifically limiting uh, coverage of these uh, organizations kind of tells you everything you need to know 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know that old hackneyed quote, uh, if you want to know who rules over you, just uh, look at who you are not allowed to criticise. Yeah. And it applies so perfectly here that now you'll be taken down for world, just discussing World Economic Forum or videos explaining the history, how it goes back to the World War II period, etc. So, yeah, the, the people you're not allowed to uh, criticise. Yeah, the platform. So LinkedIn, that's uh, Microsoft, isn't it? That's a business social media platform. Yeah, LinkedIn was horrific back in the COVID era for censorship. Right. I was knocked off it for over a year. Uh, myriad people were knocked off. And some of the stories of what they were knocked off for were comical. I mean, what I was sharing was probably pretty racy, pretty accurate and pretty damaging to the narrative. Uh, but some people were knocked off even for sharing a single scientific paper, an actual published paper with just a comment or a sarcastic comment, and they were knocked off the platform. So that's how severe it was. But it's essentially Gates Microsoft owned. So yeah, it's a problem. Now, interestingly, Paul, I was let back on and a load of people were let back on around six months ago. So word got around that LinkedIn were now backing off on the madness. And I suspect it was due to the cases, you know, the legal cases in America mm. where they were taking the government to court and it was emerging that clearly the government had colluded with big tech and even CIA and intelligence agencies uh, to to actually destroy free speech, essentially, which is constitutional. So I think that wave of, of legal cases kind of got the management a little more careful and they backed off on censorship somewhat. Uh, but the problem is when those cases pass and if they're not successful or there isn't a change in the political kind of structure, uh, the censorship is going to come back hard and heavy. I mean, you know it will. You wonder how it happens. Does someone from the WEF make a phone call to the LinkedIn guy or gal or does someone at the UN sort of um, pull someone aside and say, oh, listen here? I mean, I wonder how it works. Yeah. Well, exactly. And that was part of my reverse engineering was was thinking on that. And I think quite a bit of it is to do with exactly what you said. Certain individuals, there's large groups of them, of course, they're monitoring the Internet. They're probably monitoring specifically certain people. And what they're doing, I'd say, is putting in a flurry maybe of complaints. So if a specific post comes up they don't like, they put in a series of complaints, probably from different individuals, not just a single one. Yeah. And I'd say they try and include as well a director of an NGO or some kind of highfalutin person on paper uh, in that. So, for instance, oh, I'm John, uh, you know, Murphy, director of ISD Europe, and I just see a very... Uh, damaging misinformation in this post. Do you know what I mean? That's probably yeah. what they do. And interestingly, I tested the water around a year and a half ago. A book was published in Ireland called Web of Lies, and I had been warned about it. I featured in it for a few pages. I sent legal letters to the publisher, and they actually took out some of the more uh, disgraceful lies based on my, my letters. They still went ahead, though, and put me in the book, right? So when it came out, on the day it came out, I immediately put up a video explaining everything they said about me and it was a lie. And I showed the data and the published figures and the quotes from American authorities 
that proved everything they said about me was a lie. And even though YouTube had backed off for ages, like over a year, and they really weren't censoring nearly as much, the next morning that video was taken down with a strike. And when I appealed it, within 20 minutes it came back and said, oh, sorry, but uh, on checking the video again, it does indeed breach our policies. So immediately that video was taken down. And that was because the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, an incredibly sinister and corrupt uh, London think great, tank. Great name. <laughs> yeah, ISD. By the way, ISD, around 10 years ago, worked with governments all around the world on the Safe Cities Network. Oh. And that was to create black-clad, emotionless police for cities. For oh, that rings a bell. Yeah. And it was apparently for, quote, future terrorist attacks in cities, right? But what yeah. it was really for, of course, was control in cities. And yeah. the police yeah. that we saw, huge numbers of police in England, and I think in, in possibly New Zealand as well. New Zealand was one of the countries who worked with ISD. Uh, we saw these forces first rolled out, interestingly, uh, during the anti-lockdown protests. Yeah, so, so that was all just waiting, it. ready to go. They'd done the Pretty research. Pretty much. Yeah. It was there for Agenda 2030. We know Klaus Schwab has spoken many years ago about a future that will involve strife and uncivil unrest, and it's going to be an angrier world. He was saying that years ago because he knew, and they all yeah. know, when they That's roll coming. out Agenda 2030 and they People roll are going to get twisted up about it. They're going to get angry. They're going to get mad. They're going to push back. They anticipated that. It, of course. And the ISD clearly was a funded think tank set up as part of these agendas, uh, clear as crystal uh, on the record. Uh, but interestingly, when I put out the uh, the video, uh, simply pointing out accurately and very referenced that everything was a lie, uh, immediately the video came down. So that meant yeah. ISD probably got a few directors, bunch of other people, got them together and pounced You'd think that the platforms would be getting savvy to these sort of pile-ons, or maybe it's connected even more than that. Weren't the WEF pulling together, putting together that cyber army, or were calling for it? You know, people in their thousands, like monitoring everything. I, that rings a bell too. Absolutely, yeah. That was around two two years ago. That came out, and it was it was. The, the ranks were swollen in response to COVID. And I think from memory, it was around 100K people, approximately. Yeah. 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 And actually, that's a good point, Paul. I'm not sure what happened that since, but I guess they're certainly not disbanded. No, they'd be working it. still. Yeah. Surely. Yeah. So that could very much be a part of it, for sure. And uh, this is it. I mean, they, they want to control the information. And I think Klaus said it himself, or words to this effect, you know, if you want to control the future and, and the strategies, you need to control the narrative. And we've seen this everywhere in every corrupt kind of venture over the last few years and before, always control of the narrative is crucial. Because if ordinary people, you know, if ordinary people in general, even a sizable minority, had a grasp of what's going on and what's planned for us, uh, there'd be enormous pushback. It would be impossible uh, to roll out. 
absolutely impossible. And they know that. So the crucial thing is to keep the knowledge to a very small minority of people and call conspiracy theory whenever people talk about actual documented you know, plans and strategies of the elites and the NGOs. If you talk about them, they have kind of done a Pavlov's dog thing where they ring their little conspiracy theory slur bell yep. and people then switch off. Because no one wants to be associated with with being a conspiracy theorist. It's an extremely pejorative term, you know. Yeah, it's like being called racist in a way. Um, the yeah. thing that that um, gets me scratching my head, and I'm sure others, is that there's kind of in the end no attempt really to hide any of this. Even though there's censorship and all of that, you can go to the websites of these places, and it's in your face. It's um, plain sight, and that seems to be quite a sort of a curious dimension because you'd think you'd want to be as secretive as you possibly could be to pull any sort of moves that the kind that we talk about, but know that it's all out there. Okay. There's censorship and there's manipulation, but if you want to find out what's going on, it's not hard. I think about that quite a bit. I wonder about that. Yeah, it's, it's, I just think it's, it's actually really smart because absolutely Paul, as you say, is counterintuitive. But the, from the Rockefellers onwards, the key things that they had to do, and they were absolutely correct, was own the media or control the media, obviously, for the narrative. But they also wanted to do everything almost above board, as in, like, legal. And if we think of a certain individual, famous individual in National Socialist Germany, uh, he also changed all the laws in advance to make everything that was done technically legal. So, you know, it's really smart. Document all the plans and increasingly turn the screw. Like on climate, create the Club of Rome, create a climate catastrophe narrative by scientists and fund scientists over decades. And then you end up with an actual documented bona fide or or apparently legitimate uh, scientific you know, endeavor to save the planet. So you haven't done a secret thing to take away people's fuel and impoverish them. You know, if that was a secret thing, it could get exposed. You've been smarter. You've steadily documented, you know, publicly in a sense, but not covered by the media, the details. You've documented everything. So then when in the future people push back and begin to say, hold on a minute, this I didn't vote for this. This isn't, who are these guys? This is insane, right? You call them conspiracy theorists. And one of your defenses, ironically, in a twisted way, is this is all documented. And the, yeah. the science we, is We told us. you, we told you. Yeah. And we, had a, we had a similar thing um, kind of connected here with our now caretaker prime minister, but back when he was the prime minister, because the government's changed, probably heard just in the last uh, few weeks, where he was asked by a journalist, you know, will there be compensations, first time it was ever raised on mainstream media, if there was to be, um, um, you know, vaccine injuries and was mandating people to have vaccines, um, you know, a, a breach of human rights, coercion, etc. He said, it was your choice. We didn't make you do it. It was your choice. Everyone yeah. had a choice. And in a way, technically, if you want to sort of tweak it up, you possibly could say that because no one was holding you down. But the reality was that many people feel they didn't have any choice at all. So that's that kind of 
what do they call it? Um, plausible deniability, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the news speak, the double think. It's it's politics. Actually, funny enough, Paul, even though the last few years are absolutely grim and the whole vaccine coercion and mandating was one of the scariest things that ever happened in the modern era. Clearly, I mean, it's insane when you look at it dispassionately with a rationalist's eyes. It You just look in at what happened and you just say, that's insane. You know, but... It's, it's politics, essentially. It's geopolitical maneuvering. So it is very clever. Uh, you know, there is that deniability included. It's ensured that everything is kind of documented and everything has been signed off, at least at some level, even if it's profoundly undemocratic. So they're, they're smart guys, in fairness, and one should never underestimate the enemy. And I often remind people of that. You know, I have huge hope for the future. I think there is a great awakening. But but we really, we ha- we can't underestimate. You see a lot of people on Twitter, Paul, and they say, oh, uh, screw these guys. And, you know, they make all these angry comments about all these, you know, high up people when you share what they're saying. And it's quite disgusting. And people say, oh, they can go to hell. You know, but you can't underestimate them. They've been incredibly successful. Yeah. Uh, but the good thing is they're now faltering. I think that's the really positive point, that they're rushing, they're stumbling. There's more and more coming out and more and more awareness. And they're trying to a little frantically rush through the World Health Regulations, uh, the pandemic treaty. Yeah, yeah they're getting flustered. Law. Is that what you're saying? They're getting flustered in their actions now. I, I think they're getting a little flustered. And there's there's a few rats leaving the sinking ship. Uh, if you will, that that's been very positive. But you do see some individuals beginning to criticize some of the stuff that's going on, you know, very carefully uh, so as not to get attacked. But you're seeing some of that and this absurd deniability as well. I mean, outright comical nonsense that's coming from lead figures around the world. Fauci as well was at that a while back, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, So their greatest fear is too many people waking up that's the greatest fear it's not because you could come and 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 by gunpoint make people live a certain way but that's not the way this is happening so if too many people wake up that's their biggest problem Uh, absolutely and that's the drum i've been beating now for a long time just saying you know the widow's might even from the bible uh, is the story about the widow who had so little to give but the point was made it's important you know, even if it's only a tiny amount. And that's why everyone, even if they can't reach large audiences or convert people, it's important for everyone at every level to bring up the conversation. And I I always advise bring it up in a calm way with a raised eyebrow, maybe a little sarcasm, maybe a little humor, uh, refer to mainstream publications or news, news articles or published papers you know, clearly don't refer to stuff you saw on Facebook or the Internet and bring up these topics. So 50 years ago, I remember people generally would discuss politics and the goings on in our countries and our states. That's gone now. Everyone's got their head in the phone, head in the sand. But I remember my father, when he was 17 or 18, went to England to train as a radio officer and a friend of his went and they went from the 
the bog of Ireland, like the deep south of Ireland, right? Really primitive in a way. But they were writing letters from uh, Sheffield back to the Irish Times, the paper of record in Ireland, writing very good letters uh, around what was going on politically in the country at the time. Imagine a couple of 18-year-olds and look at them now. It's quite shocking, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's a whole new, different universe of engagement. That, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, some other topics to spin through. Um, so woman has been removed from the Constitution of Ireland, the word woman. Ah, well, they'd like to. So oh, okay. we have... An- We have a minister for children, right? And he's putting forward this referendum on, um, you know, gender uh, adjustments to the Irish constitution. Now, it faltered, yeah. I think it was back in early this year, it was first really pushed. And then they delayed it. And I think, in fairness, this is all about people becoming aware. Pushback has been very large relatively in Ireland over the last six to 12 months on all of this madness. Uh, so they pushed it back, but recently it popped up that they're going ahead with it and they're looking at the timing. And essentially, I didn't go through the details like with the hate speech law, but essentially they want to remove woman from our Irish constitution. Okay. And they want to remove about that it should be respected, supported and protected the woman's right you know, to raise a family and the woman's key position in the family. So that was okay. written into our constitution. The, the, naturally, the female or the woman's key and crucial position as the family rearing person, the future of the country kind of thing, yeah. which is all very fair. So they want to remove all that. Okay. Well, and rep- well, just, just delete my understanding is it's essentially uh, putting in some verbiage about respecting and blah, 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 diversity mm. and gender, yeah. blah, 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 blah. They're going to put in some of that rubbish, but they're mainly going to remove this kind of underpinning of a woman and the woman's role in family, etc. Because obviously they want to clear the way and they don't want constitutional challenges in the future for their nonsense. So they yeah. want to clear the way to, basically it's like the pulling down of the statues. If you're going to bring in something new, well, you got to destroy the old, right? What do the women of Ireland say then? Or have they not said anything? I don't know. Uh, largely speaking, of course, propaganda, as always, it's all about helping people. It's all about saving granny. So most women have no idea of the threat. Now, there are various small women's groups who have pushed back against pornographic books in the libraries, you know, talking about all kinds of sexual practices. Uh, and they're in the down to 12 to 16 range. They're not just for over 16s or 18s. Mm. So a bunch of groups have pushed back against this, and they're also trying to push uh, the sex stuff into our schools at a young age and the transgender stuff. So those groups have been making a lot of people aware, in fairness, around this, uh, the danger of this referendum. But sadly, I'll have to say, Paul, there are a couple of women's groups, more conservative or more orthodox establishment, and they have been cheerleading the trans stuff. 
So they are oh. literally the turkeys. <laughs> Voting for Banging. Christmas. Yeah. Yes. And it shows you the indoctrination, the propaganda that they've been steeped for so many years in this stuff that's coming, of course, from the top. They're not being influenced by grassroots, real individuals who have gender dysphoria problems. Oh, no, it's it's coming from the top. That's one thing that you've just mentioned there, gender dysphoria. That's one that's a go to answer for plenty of people if you try and talk about this. And that is, oh, well, there are people with gender dysphoria. Yeah, I know that. I know that. Give me a break. I know that. We're not talking about that. But that kind of seems to be where most of the thinking is. They haven't gone beyond that talking point. Yeah, of course. There's always a justification because the propaganda in these strategies always comes with the antidote to to anyone who questions. Like you say, gender dysphoria. Whereas what is correct to do is to use gender dysphoria in the opposite way. Gen- true gender dysphoria is a fraction of a percent. It's rare as hen's teeth. Yes. So it's genuinely extremely rare and a very sad condition, which carries a lot of stress for the person who experiences it. And those people need to uh, see professionals uh, to deal with it. No problem with that. The average person has no problem with that. Exactly. So, But that's all it should be. So how how is it that we've got up a factor of 20 or 30 in this problem, right, in the last 10, 20 years? It's clear as crystal, social contagion. It's, it's clear as crystal. Um, so the real people who have the real problem are actually being ignored. Yeah. No one cares about them. They pretend to care about them. But of course, they couldn't care less about real individuals or real problems. What they care about is the ideological mass formation the the social political kind of movement of trans that's what they care about they care about a mass formation a lot of women that i've spoken to on this program when we've been talking about you know posey parker and and these kind of issues are starting to say now a number of them are starting to say that they believe the the male um trans you know um to female um is actually a fetish and it's trying to normalize a, a kind of growing fetish where women, where men want to dress up in women's clothes and, and get aroused from that. And when you have people, you know, telling you that there's gender dysphoria and missing that, I mean, that's a big blind spot because they will, they, this will delete women as we know it if it goes all the way, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the intention. I mean, it, the intention is always to undermine society, undermine culture, history, traditions, sovereignty, and undermine even the, the things we know to be rock fast, solid things we, we, can, we can trust. So there's black and white, there's male and female, there's fundamentals that we as, as a population, as a species, can depend on. Male and female is one of the few rock-solid things at the centre of society that we can absolutely hitch our boat to. And they want to take that away. It's very interesting because the society that you take away its certainties and its established norms, you begin to unmoor it, if you will, if you keep the yep. boat analogy going. Yep. So that's that's exactly the point. Um, but sorry, what did you say, Paul, there? And I began to ramble on. You were making a point about 
Well, just saying that this is not about dysphoria. It's about normalizing. Uh, and you've got, you know, um, like you're talking about conservative uh, women's groups in Ireland. What they're really supporting is a growing normalization of a sexual fetish that a lot of men are starting to express and feel free to express. It's not, it's nothing more than that, according to many concerned traditional feminists, TERFs, I guess you'd call them. Yeah, exactly. That that was the point about the sexual gratification. And it's a very interesting one. And I remember pretty strongly in the last year, someone did a published paper on that uh, and carefully worded it to not appear transphobic, but raising that point with scientific data and statistical data and making the point that this was a risk, you know, so it's very carefully worded to not be too aggressive. And the person who published it, of course, got attacked massively. I mean, it was like flies all over buzzing around him. Uh, but it's a very important point, And it's absolutely legitimate that amongst these people, some of whom have a genuine problem uh, around identity, there's a whole bunch of predatory men who are getting their rocks off. And now they're looking at a society in disbelief that's supporting their perversion. Yeah, they can't believe it. <laughs> I mean, like, oh wow, you know. So, and then you feel like you can you can go for it because hey, you know. Yeah, I mean, go for it. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. No one's but complaining. Also, yeah. Well, quite quite the opposite. In fact, we we had the prisoner who who he he had a violent history. There's a few of these cases, but one of them in the British Isles, and uh, was put in a women's prison. And I mean, the mugshot is comical. It's literally a wig on a pig, oh, a dear. big, yeah. big butt. I mean, the face on the guy. And the aesthetics are never, man. never there, really, in in these cases, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, it it it's outrageous. And the problem is, when you have a mass formation, of course, as we know from Desmet, logic goes out the window, and perfectly normal people, otherwise go along and support something that if you stood back independently and just thought about it with a clear mind, it's absurd. So this whole trans thing, at this stage, it's just gotten absurd. Now, the good thing to be a positive also, Paul, in fairness, I, I come out with a lot of the bad stuff that's happening in the world, yep. but there's a lot of pushback. Yeah, I mean, it's getting very widespread. One of my kids actually who during lockdown and, and stuff would let me know what was going on in TikTok and in the younger culture. Yeah. And the disappointing thing was, in general, the young people were just going along with it rather than rebelling like they should have. However, she has said to me recently that the anti-woke, she said now, is everywhere in those teens and 20s kind of uh, realms. So there's a huge anti-woke uh, pushback going on in the younger generation which which i was delighted to hear yeah i'm, I'm enjoying hearing that thanks for, for letting me know about that <laughs> so there'd be no point then in having this referendum well the referendum again because it's a top-down strategy it's nothing to do with with grassroots obviously in ireland top-down strategies w will get pushed uh to closure if they can Right. Um, yep. We saw monkeypox failed, but they gave it a ruddy good push. Yeah, they sure did. All of, yep. 
Yeah. So so this one is coming from the top, just like the hate speech laws. So it ain't going to just, you know, pack up and wander away. Uh, it'll be very interesting, though, as they begin to propagandize the people in the run up to the referendum. And then they will want to, of course, call people who question the referendum conspiracy theorists. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Racists. You, just, you can just see Usually. what's going to happen. You can yeah. Yeah, get the checklist out. Get ready. Here we go. Um, okay, about 10 minutes left. I saw Christine Lagarde, the head of the EU Central Bank, I think, uh, in a clip the other day saying that there will be um, there will be um, surveillance and uh, rules around having a, an EU CBDC. And the reason I mention that, because uh, you have mentioned here that uh, the EU are heading for that digital ID, the EU Internal Market Commissioner has been uh, I think, st striking deals at about the same time. So the ducks are lining up, is what I'm thinking. Yeah, of course. And it was inevitable. So it's not like there's no shocks uh, on the informed side of the house uh, on our side. But yeah, Thierry uh, Breton, I think is his name, the, the market commissioner, right. yep. just on a deal there with the EU. And they've all said, yeah, hey, it's great. And it's a digital ID that everyone will be entitled to have a digital ID. It's entitled? Entitlements. Yes. Oh, everyone has a right. Oh, it's the magic word, is it? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's it's a right we're going to give you. We're going to give you, you know, the right to live in a 15-minute city, uh, <laughs> etc. So it, there's a digital wallet discussed uh, in conjunction with this uh, digital ID. And it'll have sensitive data, very sensitive personal data, but that will all be safe, of course. Uh, but it's all in cahoots with the big plan, which we know now has been coming for decades. Digital IDs, everyone is tracked and it's connected to your finances. So if you're a problem or if you're criticizing the government or going to a demonstration, well, they literally have you by the short and curlies. And, and that's what it's for. And as Professor um, Werner said, uh, I interviewed him, I think we talked about that before. He was saying basically that there is no digital currency about it. We've had digital currency for decades now. Most movement of money is digital. The new thing is C, central. And that's what it's all about. It's about centrally controlled currency, yep. centralized. And that's the whole thing. And everything ends up in it, right? So um, the currency you use, all the identifications and accesses you needed to operate in the society, uh, all your medical, WHO here now, international health regulations, all your medical stuff, uh, and then for getting around traveling, all the um, the health, One Health passport, et cetera. It just all comes together, doesn't it? Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what's been worked on for a long, long time. And it, it's worth mentioning another thing from Werner that, that I hadn't fully realized. The European Parliament, you know, is where the people can go and whine, but they don't really make the laws. They're not really powered. It's the European Commission that's unelected that essentially holds unelected. the Unelected, unelected. Well, it, indirectly they're put forward but they're not elected by the people that's the point they're kept they're kept separate and as he said there's another country that had this exact system for a long time until it collapsed and that country was soviet union 
So the Soviet Union had a parliament, but of course it had no power. It was a talk shop. And the Politburo, the party people, uh, they were the version of what is now the EU Commission. So essentially, we have recreated the Soviet-era system right. but with lots of nice words and lots of talk of democracy. But it's essentially a Soviet-style centralized system. And we've seen this get worse and worse and worse. And now it's coming to its ultimate fruition, turning into a full-on Soviet-style control system. That's it. No conspiracy theory. It's all there. It's all documented, like you said earlier. It's just no one realizes it. Okay, a couple more items. Who is, who's the C40 bunch? Oh, that's coming up recently because Sinek in England, it turns out that this C40 group is all around climate and reducing meat and all, all the usual Rockefeller-style policies. Uh, but it, it's the London mayor, Sadiq Khan, is uh, chairman of it pushing for zero meat, zero dairy, and zero private car ownership, ultimately. And um, there's a billionaire behind it uh, that's so rich. I think he paid himself two million a day for the last year. Oh, and, uh, my God. Yep. Yeah, he's an XOR billionaire, a financier and hedge fund guy. And it came out in the Telegraph, actually, the other day. <laughs> but essentially, it's exposing that there's mega money behind this group and several key politicians are also connected intimately into it. So it's just showing an insight into some of what we were talking about, that everything's coming from the top, everything's rolled down, none of it is grassroots. And here we can see in the Telegraph some of the filthy money that's being piled in. Yeah, so another one that um, should have is, is wealth limited. Another one on the list. Okay. Oh, God, yeah. And uh, Sir Christopher Hone, a financier whose okay. investments include a stake in the owner of Heathrow Airport, oh, has donated okay. more than £670 million sterling to climate campaigns via his, quote, philanthropic fund in less than a decade. So, he, so he's a substantial owner of Heathrow Airport, probably – the amount of greenhouse gases burned around that premises is would be mind-boggling. Yeah. <laughs> they don't. It's like Bill yeah. Gates owning all the pharmaceutical stocks. They're they're laughing at us essentially. But this guy obviously was was he was quiet behind the scenes. But yeah. great to see the Telegraph, which has yeah, been a pretty good yeah. paper during COVID as well. In fairness, uh, maybe due to the ownership, I'm not sure. But great to see this stuff coming out into the, the public eye. Okay, and to finish up on, uh, this sounds like a bit of a stoush potentially. Residents of Irish Village Rage has planned nursing home is scrapped to make way for male adult migrants. And quite a few of them. I had a quick look at the story. Yeah, it's they're, they had plans and they were building a nursing home, which is very much needed in the area down the southeast of Ireland relatively rural but it is where the big ferry port is rosslare harbour and anyway those plans have suddenly been squashed and they want to put 170 male migrants and you can be sure they're young males uh, that's the way it is of fighting age is usually how they, <laughs> they put as it, they it? say yeah now i don't really paul to be honest 
I don't really go with that whole thing about I, I think it's about civil unrest and undermining society and no disrespect. The people coming in, they're not the problem at all. The problem is the strategy that's driving people into the countries in order to dilute and undermine the societal structures. And this is a great example. So Ireland has taken way more per capita of people from Ukraine, for instance. And that's because Ireland is a globalist puppet state, essentially. And I think we've taken close to 100,000 migrants. Whoa, okay. Which is a a huge number for a country of four and a half million. I mean, proportionately and young and plenty of males. And there was footage of buses at 5 a.m. being uh, divested of a whole bunch of migrants during the Ukraine era. But the funny thing was they all had mobile phones. They were were very well kitted out. And many of them were clearly uh, African origin people. I was like, what's going on? Okay, not not quite kind of your typical Ukrainian. No, I I think they opened the, the floodgates to the Ukraine, but under the guise of having that excuse uh, to roll out these globalist plans, uh, I think they opened a lot more doors as well. It was like, <laughs> you know, why not? Let, let's let's flood the zone, guys. Uh, and that's the kind of leaders we have. But in this case, 170, potentially going to 400 people in a community yeah, of, big. I think, 1,200. So yeah. up to a third of this local kind of small community could be swamped uh, with with economic migrants because they won't have have jobs, will they? And um, there are too many to to have instantaneous jobs available to them. They'll, they'll just be wandering around the town, won't they? Yeah, essentially. And then they will be permits will be gotten, and they'll all be given a brand new smartphone. And but remember, uh, Paul, we're all paying plenty of tax, so there's no shortage of money to just to flood at them you know, in terms of benefits and housing and phones and, you know, grants for everything. There's no shortage of money, of course. And I see in the story there's been a reassurance from whoever the authority is who are rehousing them or taking these immigrants in that, oh, no, we'll, you know, we'll we'll make sure that everything will be run correctly and you can rely on that. But you never can, can you? Well, public servants always tell you, don't worry, it'll be fine. Uh, but they're either incompetent or malign, generally. That's what I found over my uh, private sector career. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Well, that was an interesting uh, walk through some of the issues that have uh, occurred in the uh, month or so that uh, uh, since we last talked. So, Ivor, thanks so much for coming on to RCR again. Great to hear what's uh, been going down, what you've been thinking about. And we'll talk again maybe in about another month or so. And see see how far we've come. See what's happened. Maybe we, even with some of those uh, those items that we've just talked about. Great stuff, Paul. Catch you next time. Thanks. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.